Such a important time to be alive. <laughs> Such a good time to be alive. Such an opportunity to see the kingdom of God advance in our midst. And so as we have been doing the last uh, several months in Elevation Church, we are just hopefully, boldly going after what's on everybody's heart and mind. There are so many issues that we're facing this year, 2020. It's kind of not even a funny joke anymore how crazy it is. Uh, and so as a church, we've been saying, let's open God's word and let's try to orient ourselves. Let's anchor our souls in the truth of God in the midst of this storm we're calling 2020. And so right now we are in week two of a series that's just looking directly at what, is the, what does it mean to be an American and a Christian? And can we be proud to be American? Because there is a strong, I wouldn't even call it an undercurrent anymore. It's now right on top current, where it's in vogue to say that the American experiment has failed. And that America is bankrupt morally. And that we are irreversibly racist and sexist and all, all sorts of other bad things. And that there is a direct attempt, therefore to essentially forget or erase or revise all of that which founded our country. All of those, if there's anything that can be traced back to the, to the founders, to the principles, to the morals, to the people that started this nation, then, then we want to get rid of that because America failed and we need to start anew. That's a very strong current that we're hearing. And I want to take us into God's Word over the next few weeks to articulate and put together a series of four or five deep truths from God's Word that line up beautifully and perfectly, and, and as you'll see, what I would argue flow directly from the founders of our nation that give us great reason to be proud to be American. And in fact, help orient us with the reality that as Christians, we have received a godly heritage from our founders that is worth knowing and defending and promoting. That truly, everybody wins in our country. When the, the, the principles that we're going to look at are lived upon and our society is built upon them. So last week, for example, we looked at how the founders unequivocally demonstrated a deep dependence on God, and that we can be proud to be Americans today because we have founders that said, in God we trust, and that that is a value that from the time the Puritans came here in the 1630s seeking religious freedom and, and going through just untold trials to the point that half of their families died in the first winter and none of them went home although they had the opportunity in the spring because the Mayflower was sitting right there going back to England and not one person said wow that was too hard I want to go back they came here to advance the kingdom of God we've seen that quote over and over from Bradford their their governor 
and that, that foundation of bold faith, wanting to honor God and see the kingdom of God advance in the remotest parts of the world, like Jesus said to every tongue, tribe, and nation to the ends of the earth, it cost them greatly. But it, it created a spiritual wave in the colonies that we see that the founders utterly relying upon to the point where at the first Continental Congress, before they did any business of talking about a declaration of independence, what did they do? They made a motion to pray. And every single morning in Continental Congress, in Congress, in Congress, if that word didn't ring a bell, in Congress, not in church, in Congress, they prayed every single day, deep, deeply declaring dependence on God. And it saw its way into the Declaration of Independence mightily, clearly. (laughs) The way that I read it last week, I see the Declaration with new eyes. It's a prayer. It's basically a prayer saying, God, we are casting our dependence upon you. It's incredible. Over and over and over, we just see these type of incredible declarations of dependence upon God. And this morning, we're going to look at another aspect that flows right from that. Out of dependence upon God comes the the deep conviction that we need to be a people of character and morals if this society is going to work. John Adams, our second president, had such a deep conviction of this reality that about 10 years after seeing the, the Constitution ratified, he started to reflect on our country, a clarification about our founding document from the second president of the United States. And this is what he said. Our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other I mean, we, are you, can you feel me? Can you feel this here? This is an astounding statement that one of the drafters of the Constitution, our second president, said that the Constitution itself, this whole framework for this government and new society, will not work except for a people who are moral and religious. And it was written for them. It was written for that kind of people. That's the only thing that's going to make it work. That's how critical God and character are to this society. That is incredibly good news, actually. (laughs) If you're one who's hearing that narrative that all the, the founders were all deists or atheists, so there was no real dependence upon God, it was just, dude, It's laughable if you actually get into the history books. It's sadly laughable how deeply dependent upon God our founders were. And again, like we said last week, it's not that they were perfect. Nobody said that. Nobody tries to say that. But for strugglers like we all are, who were trying to found a society on principles that would last Wow, did they do some extraordinarily good things. George Washington reflected on this dual, these dual pillars to found our society 
of religion and morality like this. Let us with caution indulge the supposition that morality can be maintained without religion. Reason and experience both forbid us to expect that a national morality can prevail in exclusion of religious principle. Now, I know these, you know, dumb farmers from New York, like, talk so, like, you know, easy that, it, you know, we're like, oh, no, just kidding. These guys are like, what? what does it even mean? So let's try to break it down into common English here. He is saying that we cannot expect to have a nation that will be a moral people. We cannot expect to have a nation of people with character and virtue if it is not a nation that is dependent upon God. To the exclusion of religious principle, we cannot expect morality. In other words, a society that does not have some type of mutually agreed upon objective source of truth that informs morality is a society destined for decline into some type of moral chaos. Because if it's just you deciding morality for you and me deciding morality for me, can we not see the logical conclusion is going to be chaos? History has seen no such other result. So how did the the founders grow this tree of liberty? How did they build a society where liberty was, in some sense, the the highest goal, that if we could get to liberty and justice for all, if we could get there, if we could build in things that would make that an opportunity to pursue, how do we do it? So last week, we could see the foundation. We're hearing it this morning in John Adams and George Washington. By the way first and second president of the United States. I mean, how awesome is that right there? (laughs) That our first and second presidents of our country have these deep convictions about the, the irreplaceable role of religion and morality or dependence upon God that flows into virtuous character as really the foundation of society. That if the Constitution's going to work, we've got to have these. Wow, that's quite an inheritance. One more from John Adams. He said, statesmen, my dear sir, may plan and speculate for liberty, but it is religion and morality alone which can establish the principles upon which Freedom can securely stand. So as I was reading all this, studying this, a picture is beginning to emerge in my mind. Of of there, it's a foundation. And there's building blocks, if you will. And then in a truly, what felt like a divine moment, a 
a uh, divine appointment with an article on the internet, I found one of the first ever American flags. And lo and behold, it creates a picture of the founding principles and how liberty at the top, that is the goal of the society, is created upon these founding principles that cannot be removed or liberty falls. So let's get this picture up here. This is maybe called the Liberty Tree Flag. But this is, there's incredible history behind this. So as the war begins in the 1775 range, the, the Continental Army, led by George Washington, has a problem. Because in that day and age, you identified enemies by flags often. So they had a problem. What's our flag? And as they're rushing to try to face the British, the most powerful army in the world at the time, they're, they're not really taking the time, oh, let's, let's, let's go to Congress, let's go through committee, let's go to all this lengthy process and, and figure out a national flag. So grassroots things take place. And the one that emerges, according to the history books, as the most common flag that the Continental Army flew was this. It is even said that, or by Colonel Joseph Reed, that when George Washington sanctioned the first ever officially, uh, the first ever official Navy ships or military ships for the, for, for the American Navy, Colonel Joseph Reed wrote to the captains and he asked them, quote this, please fix upon some particular color for a flag. So he talks to the captain, say, hey, Navy guys, you got to get together. You've got to decide a flag for our, for our Navy and signal by which our vessels may know one another. What do you think of a flag with a white background, a tree in the middle, and the motto, appeal to heaven? This is the flag of our floating batteries. So it was already being used. So this, this type flag right here, tree in the middle, an appeal to heaven. This became essentially the flag of the Navy, our first Navy. It was used in many other battles, like Bunker Hill. It was so commonplace that it made it back to England. There was a report given that this is now how you can identify the American army. It said, quote, a report of a captured ship revealed that the flag taken from a provincial American privateer is now deposited in the Admiralty. This is the, basically the English government talking to one another. So they stole the flag. They've got it. They captured the flag. They've got it hidden. The field is a white bunting with a spreading green tree and the motto, appeal to heaven. Okay, to understand like, the, the gravity of this and where it comes from, there's more history. John Locke wrote two incredibly influential documents back in the 1600s called it Treaties of Government, a Second Treaties of Government. In fact, it's, it's, it's argued, or it's kind of poked fun at Thomas Jefferson that he copied a lot of that to make the Declaration of Independence, which is true in the sense that he used some very specific phrases. One of them that John Locke used was an appeal to heaven. John Locke was a very, very strong Christian, 
And he argued back in the 1600s for, the, for a just revolution against tyranny. In those two documents, the Bible's quoted over 1,500 times. And in, in one of those such places, he is arguing for the time for just revolution, and he quotes Judges 11.27, in which Jephthah and the Ammonites are going to war. And he quotes, and he tells this long story about how this was a last resort. They had tried to avoid war. But when there was no avoiding war because the Ammonites were just continuing to oppress them and they were pushed into a corner and the people of Israel had to go to battle, what did they do? Quote, they were forced to an appeal to heaven. An appeal to heaven, which makes it onto this flag. Judges 11.27 says this, I therefore have not sinned against you, This is Jephthah talking to the Ammonites. But you are doing me wrong by making war against me. So may the Lord the judge judge today between the sons of Israel and the sons of Ammon. Ammon. This is Jephthah saying, in the last resort, as we have to go to war, may God be our judge. It's an appeal to heaven. That language made it clearly into the Declaration of Independence. We saw it last week, but in case you aren't ringing a bell here, at the closing paragraph, the Declaration states this, We therefore, the representatives of the United States of America in general Congress, assembled appealing to the Supreme Judge of the world for the rectitude of our intentions. In a sense, in a last resort declaration of war they follow judges 1127 they follow the logic of john locke and they make an appeal to heaven for the rectitude of our attentions basically saying god if this is righteous then victory comes from you we appeal to you we depend on you we say judge our intentions and if we are right then give us victory an appeal to heaven and it made it on the flag. The national ethos of the army, the motto was, if this is righteous, then God be our judge and bring us through. The first flag. Wow. And so here's the conviction that upon that tree of liberty, It grows, and here's the key that we've got to see. It's undisputable from the founders that the tree of liberty in our society grows from the roots of faith in God, dependence on God. There it is, an appeal to God. Those are the roots of where they believed liberty would grow from. And then from those roots grows a stock a sturdy stem, a trunk of morality, of character. And those two things now, dependence on God, that would then grow character and morality, now we've got some foundational pieces that will end up growing a society where liberty can reign. And the conviction of the founders is if you remove the bottom two, liberty will fall. 
That's an America to be proud of. And the pilgrims were incredibly influential once again in the hearts and the minds of the founders. And I want to take us to a a monument to the pilgrims. If you were with us about four years ago, gave a whole message on the pilgrims and we went over this monument. But two of the factors, two of the statues in the monument are huge and relevant for this message. So we'll review a little bit here. At the National Monument to the Forefathers, there are two statues. One is called Faith, one is called Morality, and it's not a coincidence. If you look upon these, the statues, you walk up, the biggest one is Faith, 81 feet tall, biggest granite monument in our country. No duh for the pilgrims, of course it's Faith, I mean, it was Faith that moved them to cross an ocean at great danger. It was faith that said, even after half of our people have died, we're not going back. It was faith the whole way through. That's why the finger is pointing up to God. Faith is absolutely the rooting and grounding of life. Life is an appeal to God. But then the second statue is morality. It's not a coincidence that morality, the statue here, is holding the Ten Commandments. Because the pilgrims believe that but morality has to be grounded in something. It's grounded in God. It's grounded in the Bible. You can't ground morality in yourself. That will ultimately lead to chaos because what you think is true is not what I think is true. What's going to get me ahead if God doesn't exist and it's all just survival of the fittest and it's me against you, then what I'm going to come up with for my code and ethos of morality is not going to be safe for you. So they knew that, and they said, we've got to ground ourselves in, a, in an objective reality outside of us, and the best source that all of humanity has ever had is the Word of God. So the Ten Commandments sit there, sitting in morality's arms. Morality comes from our dependence upon God, our appeal to heaven. But what's deeper to it is it's not a morality that's just about rules. It's not the Ten Commandments seen as, oh, this is just right and wrong. These are God's chains to oppress you from holding back. Don't do this. Don't do that. Mm -mm. And part of the flavor you get from that is you see on the statue that there is on either side a mini statue. One is, says prophet. The other says evangelist. And so it's the interpreting of the, the Ten Commandments, the law of God through that new covenant blessing of, of both the prophet and the evangelist where, yes, the prophet calls us back to the ways of God and the evangelist invites us into this true, authentic relationship with God. In other words, the morality of the Ten Commandments that our society needs desperately to build upon if there's going to be liberty is not just a bondage, or it is not a bondage where we just have these external yeses and nos to follow. It, is, it starts in the heart. It is about heart transformation with God and that that transforms our character so that we live out in increasing measure God's ways because it honors him, yes, but also because 
It is our good. God did not give us laws to oppress us. He gave us his laws, his ways, his commands to set us free so that we would be fully alive in him. Don't murder. Is that to hold you back? Or to help you become fully alive in the freedom and liberty God has for you? And so on and so forth. So the pilgrims understood the commands of God are for the good of his people. This is where the battle's at right now. When so many people in our world want to have nothing to do with morality. They want to have nothing to do with an objective source of morality and truth that ultimately and always makes its way back to God. Makes its way back to the Bible as the revelation of truth, of right and wrong. So many people don't want to hear any of that and they just cut that off because they don't believe or they've been taught poorly or they've been they've seen horrible examples that has given them the lie that God's commands are not for their good that God's commands are there as some archaic chain to hold them back just to you know it's it's power because the powerful religious want to just hold people back, hold them under their thumb. That has happened. That is, in fact, why the Puritans came to, to America. To come out from the oppressive rule of King George, who had made himself both king and God, essentially, on earth. Or God's just direct connection. And when he started, stopped following God and went astray, it just gets really ugly what happens to the people under his rule and reign. However, it doesn't change who God is and the way God has designed his world to work. Let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 30. This is God's heart for his law. And why does he give laws and commands? Are they to hold us back? Are they to oppress us and hold us down? Deuteronomy 30 15 to 19, God says, See, I have set before you today life and prosperity and death and adversity in that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways and keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments that you may live and multiply that the Lord your God may bless you in the land where you are entering to possess it. But if your heart turns away and you will not obey and are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You will not prolong your days in the land where you are going, crossing the Jordan to enter and possess it. So I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse. So choose life. Choose life in order that you may live. we got to read this very carefully. All of the commandments of God are given. And God says, these are my ways. Walk with me. You're made for me. You're made for relationship with me. So before, uh, today, I have set before you life 
and prosperity. Choose to live. When you follow me, when you follow my commands, you are choosing life and prosperity. My commands are only for your good. Because you're made for me. You're made for a relationship with me, and I know you best. So I've set up life as when you follow me, you follow my ways, my commands. That is your abundant life. That is prosperity. And it's when you shake off the commands of God that you are choosing curse. You're choosing to live life outside of God. You're choosing to live life apart from God. And God's saying, that's a cursed life. Why would you choose that? And in fact, 1 Thessalonians says that's in fact hell when we're shut out from the presence of God, when we choose to live outside of a relationship with God. And you know what? A lot of people are already experiencing hell right now because they know, they know what it feels like to live outside of God, and it's hellish. That's what God's saying. He's not saying, I'm going to curse you. I'm going to destroy you. I'm going to do all these horrible things. He's saying, choose life. I'm giving you, you choose to live outside of life with me. It's bad. It's horrible. It's not what you're made for. You're made to be connected to me, the source of abundant life. And so that's the battle right there that's currently raging in our world. Because anytime we talk about morality, it real quick, doesn't it? Check this out with your friends, with yourself, with your neighbors, with your family. Real quick, there's this, I would call it pride, it bucks up. It says, I don't need people telling me what to do. I don't need God telling me what's right and wrong. That's Psalm 2, which says this. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising vain things? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed. And here's what they say. Let us take chains apart and cast away their cords from us. When we have been deceived by the enemy, we see God as the enemy. We see God as one who's trying to put chains upon us, and we've got to buck up against God and tear off the chains of truth and morality. But that is the lie. That is the lie right there that we need to battle. Is life really going to be better when you decide truth for yourself? Is, light, is society really going to be better when everybody gets to decide their own morality? We need to push that back on our society and say, let's play this out. What is this going to look like 5, 10, 15, 20 more years from now when everyone gets to decide their own morality? It looks like hell. There's no safety, there's no security. There's no guarantee of love or justice or kindness or mercy. All of those things are an objective reality outside of us that says this is right, this is wrong. It's coming from God. It is the abundant life when you submit to it. 
So we've got to help people see that the road we're going down now that says, I don't need God, I don't need morality as an outside source to learn and come under for an abundant life, I'll do it myself. We have got to push back in gentleness and kindness, but in boldness and truth and help people see, play that out. What is that going to look like when it takes, when that tree of quote-unquote liberty fully grows? It is utter violent chaos, and no one can say that's bad. Unless you put yourself back into a biblical worldview. Humble yourselves, humble ourselves, say there is a right and wrong, and we submit to God's law, and oh, is that a glorious freedom? The liberty tree. I don't know about you guys, but I believe that picture, if we can put that picture up one more time. You're the man, Jake, you're already on it. Let's get the one that talks about appeal to God and then morality. Let's get that emblazoned in our hearts. The founders sold everything they had and bought the field for this. Many laid down their life for this. They laid down, they, they, they pledged everything they had with an appeal to God. Benjamin Rush said it like this. If you don't know Benjamin Rush, awesome hero founding hero. I call him a hero. I think he's amazing. Super great connection, powerful connection to God. Signer of the Declaration of Independence. The first Surgeon General started one of the first abolition, abolitionist societies in America in the 1700s. Huge on education. And he says this, the only foundation for a republic is to be laid in religion. Without this, there can be no virtue. And without virtue, there can be no liberty. And liberty is the object in life of all Republican governments. Republican meaning governments that are represented. The people are represented by the consent of the people. Not the political party. That by another one of our founders, signer of the Declaration. That's the liberty tree right there. You, do you hear it? You see it? Foundation of the Republic is to be laid in religion. Without this, there's no virtue. Without virtue, there's no liberty. Founded in God, an appeal to God, which leads us to morality and character, which gives us hope for liberty. Without deep dependence on God and a right and wrong morality that flows from it, that tree of liberty will fall. That is the deeply held conviction of many of our founders. George Washington said this, of all of the dispositions and habits which lead to political prosperity, not personal, political prosperity, religion and morality are indispensable supports. Supports. There it is. There's the liberty tree again. I don't know if these guys talked about it together, but they're all saying the same thing. 
It's the liberty tree. Indispensable supports. Religion, morality, it builds the house of political life. Patrick Henry said this in 1799. The great, and this is the give me liberty or give me death guy. So back at the Declaration of Independence, another great founder. The great pillars of all government social life are virtue, morality, and religion. Somebody gave him a script. They're all saying the same thing. Listen, then he goes on. This is the this is the armor and this alone that renders us invincible. The armor that renders America, and this is as a, as, as a nation 20 years old, the armor that renders us invincible, <gasps> virtue, morality, and religion. Great pillars of government. Wow. Okay, we're going to close. We'll go to France here for a moment. Shortly after the Revolutionary War had concluded, a young man by the name of Alexis de Tocqueville from France, made the journey over, and he just observed America. Because America was shining as a beacon on the hill to the world. People were like, what is going on there? So he came to do a study of this new thing, democracy in America. And this was one of his conclusions about what he observed. This is an outside source observing what's going on here. And he says this. The Americans combine the notions of Christianity and liberty so intimately in their minds that it is impossible to make them conceive of one without the other. Hallelujah. The religious atmosphere. I mean, how do people say that the founders were not wanting to create a country that was deeply dependent upon God. I mean, that is pure revisionist history to meet your current narrative. Just because you don't want to be dependent on God doesn't mean they weren't. Jeez, Louise. The Americans combined notions of Christianity and liberty. That's the liberty tree. That's at the top. Well, what's the foundation? Christianity and liberty are so intimately combined in their minds, it's impossible to make them conceive of one without the other. The religious atmosphere of the country, this is a shocking statement. The religious atmosphere of the country was the first thing that struck me upon my arrival in the U.S. In France, I had seen the spirits of religion and freedom almost always marching in opposite directions. Yeah, how'd that work out for you, French Revolution and Napoleon? In America, I found them intimately linked together and joined and reigned over the same land. Religion should therefore be considered as the first of their political institutions. From the start, politics and religion have agreed and have not since ceased to do so. It's the liberty tree. 
founded in deep dependence on God and let that flow into morality and character and virtue that gives us a chance as a society to be a free people. So what do we do now? We do what George Mason said in 1776 in a prophetic foresight of what would be needed, also because he knew the Bible, but written in the Virginia Declaration of Rights was this. No free government nor the blessings of liberty can be preserved to any people but by a frequent recurrence or return to fundamental principles. That we must go forward by going back. Dependence upon God and a morality that flows and grows from it was the hope then for a society of liberty, and it's the hope now. And we need to find creative, wise, gentle, but forceful and bold ways to live this, to share this, to promote this, to see America that is truly free. Let's pray. God, we ask for your help. As the founders did, we make an appeal to heaven. We make an appeal to heaven. That God, if the rectitude of our intentions is just and good, as the founders put in the Declaration of Independence, the founding document of our nation, we follow in their footsteps and we say, God, if the rectitude of our intentions is good, then would you show yourself mighty on our behalf? Would your spirit blow once again? We make an appeal to heaven that if the rectitude of the intentions of our founders were good, and if they appealed to you in a righteous and just way, then blow, spirit, blow. Would you show yourself mighty on their behalf? Would you be that just judge of the universe who shows the clear reality of your intentions and your will and your favor and your goodness and your power and your mercy, your salvation, your healing, your deliverance, your virtue that leads to freedom? Would you pour that out on this land and on us and show us how to release it to others. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.